Uh, good morning again. Today we are continuing our series that Steve and I have entitled God's Big Picture. And what we're doing is we're looking at the major contours in the biblical storyline, the major events leading up to the climax that we find in Jesus Christ. And so today we start very much in an appropriate place. After last, the last two weeks were essentially introductory in nature, getting us into the series, and now we go to the beginning of the story, where God sort of sets the stage, as it were, for uh, we get to see who the characters are going to be in this divine drama that's going to play itself out over the course of history, and we're introduced to God himself and what he's like, and we're introduced to the humans that he has created and what they are like, and this world that they are to live in. So I do invite you to uh, keep your bulletin out to all of Genesis 1 printed there, or um, if you have a Bible in front of you, or there may be some that are scattered around through the chairs, pick it up and take a look at Genesis 1. Uh, this is what we're going to look at today. As, as, a, as a really brief introductory comment, uh, I should say, unfortunately, when we come to Genesis, oftentimes we get very distracted trying to read into this ancient text about the mysterious origins of the universe our 21st century questions. And we come to it looking for scientific precision. We come to it looking for historical accuracy. Um, and oftentimes we want it to tell us details about times and lengths and period and spaces that the text just isn't interested in telling us. And what it is interested in telling us is the truth about who God is, the truth about the world that he has made, and the truth about us as humans and who we are as we worship this God in the world that he has made. And it is a uh, true story then that, that, make no mistake, it contradicts all sorts of other explanatory narratives that were available to the people living in the ancient Near East who would have first read this and that are available to us today. But I wanna, what I want to do is, uh, the more and more I was thinking about and preparing for the sermon, I had originally decided that it was going to be all about the world and the goodness of the world and the creation of it. But the more and more I studied Genesis 1, the more I realized that the crowning moment and the defining moment in this narrative, in this long narrative, is verse 26 and verse 27, where we get to the creation of humans. And, and they, they are the, the crowning uh, moment in God's creation. And so what I want to do today is I want to walk you through um, very quickly the first uh, 25 verses, and it's going to be a brief overview, and you can make marginal notes, and you can call me, and we can go out to lunch and talk about details more. But we're not going to get sidetracked. We don't want to get bogged down um, in debates. Sometimes people get very... Um, cranky about some of their views, but what we want to do is lead up to the creation of humanity and answer the question, what are humans created for? What's their purpose? Where do we see ourselves in this divine drama um, that is unfolding as history unfolds? So I do want to start at verse 1 and 2. So take a look back at verse 1 and 2. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What a powerful, simple sentence that sets the stage for the way that we should think about God. It means that God himself must be the eternal, the uncreated, the self-sustaining, sovereign Lord of all the universe. Okay, so make no mistake about that. He has all power. He has all authority to do what he wants with uh, with the world that he has created and with the people that he has created. And on top of that, on top of that, 
notice that all the other things that people could have or would have worshipped, he creates and does things with himself. So in the ancient Near East, people would, you know, Babylonians, Egyptians, Assyrians would worship the sun, they would worship the moon, but it says God himself has created these, if you look in verse um, 16, as greater and lesser lights upon the earth. He does what he wants to with them. In the ancient Near East, people would have, would have uh, thought that the cosmic waters, the seas and the oceans were the place where like, evil originated and rose up from. But you see that God, in, if you look at verses 6 through 8, he is in control of the waters and separating them and doing whatever he wants to with them. So the point is, good things in the universe... Sun, moon, they give light, animals, creatures, birds, fish, all that stuff. He's in control of all of those things. Evil things, things beyond your control, chaos, unimaginable forces, he's in control of those things. This is the one God worthy of worship, worthy of praise, worthy of glory. And that's how he's presenting himself. Now look at verse 2, though, and let's get into the story. Verse 2 presents us with something of a problem already. We usually think of getting to the problem when we get to the fall in chapter 3. But here's what it is. Look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Without form and void, it's kind of difficult to get our minds around. Try thinking about that. What does without form look like? What does void look like? If you put yourself in the place of a human, uh, uh, an ancient Near Easterner, an Israelite, hearing this story for the first time, you may paraphrase it as something like this. The land, the the Hebrew word for earth can be translated as earth or land. The land was a barren wilderness where nothing could live. The land was uninhabitable and uninhabited, without form and void. And so that sets the stage. That sets the stage for everything that's going to happen from this point forward. In two ways. In the first way, you'll see that all of the creation week is actually God trying to solve this problem of what does the world look like without a place for people to live in and without those people to live in it. And in a lot of senses, the entire Old Testament, let's, just, let's put it this way, you can't get very far in the Old Testament without considering yourself, without asking the question, who are God's people? Where is God's place? They, they make so much about the land and entering into it, and about Israel and what Israel's to mean, and about Jerusalem and about the temple and about God's chosen people. So the, the stage is set. God is clearing space that he will fill with his created beings. So take a look. You know, you know what I've done? Um, I, don't, I don't know if you really want to do this. If you have a pen, but I just kind of um, put a mark after verse, verse 5. So verse 3 through 5 is day 1. You could, even, you could jot this down. I don't see many people doing this. Write in your Bible there. And verse 6 through 8 is day 2. So you could put a little mark after verse 8. And verse 9 through 14 is day 3. And verse 14 through 19 is day 4. And verse 20 through 23 is day 5. And then 24 on is day 6 until you come to chapter 2. 
Okay, and the reason I do that is because I want you to see, look at in days one, two, and three, God creates space. And in days four, five, and six, he fills that space with things. Okay, so on day one, he makes the day and the night. That's in verses three through five. And then on day four, he fills the day and night with a sun and moon to live there, to dwell there, to be there, and to exist. And look at day two. On day two, he makes the sky and the sea. That's in verse six through eight. And then on day five, he fills the sky and sea with birds and fish. Again, he creates a space and a place, and then he fills that place with creatures to inhabit. And finally, on day three, he makes the dry land. That's in verses 9 through 13. And then on day six, he fills the earth with animals and humans. And what I want you to notice is that everything is leading up to that moment when he creates humanity. Everything We're moving from inanimate objects to the more animate. We're, we're moving from the less personal to the more personal. And at that moment, the pinnacle of creation, he creates humanity. And look what he does. Before creating them, this is the only time in this narrative that he stops at verse 26, speaks to himself, considers and reflects, and says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then look again, after he creates them, in verse 29, he blesses them, and then he speaks to them directly, and then he calls his creation not only good, but in verse 31, very good, and then he rests. He's finished with his work. He's done. Everything is moving forward to this point. This is the high point of Genesis chapter 1, and it causes us to focus on What does it mean to be truly human? Now, here's the problem. What's the real problem? There's all sorts of confusion about what it means to be human. We're all human. You would think we have the idea down by now. There's all sorts of confusion about it. Um, In a great book called Designed for Dignity, uh, Richard Pratt comments on a newspaper article he once read called The Irony of Being Human. And this, this is a great illustration of the confusion that exists today regarding our human nature. The article recounts two events that took place in the same hotel on the same evening. So on the first floor, you had a woman who had left her husband and her children to find another lover and to live happily ever after with him. But on that night, he left her alone, abandoned, desolate. And what she does, as Pratt describes it, is she takes a pistol, 38 caliber pistol, puts it in her mouth, pulls the trigger. And this is what the suicide note says. Don't cry for me. I'm not even human anymore. Having abandoned one life for a lover and then losing that life because he left her, she knows nothing else to do but commit suicide. And a few floors above, at about the same time, there was a gathering of some folks who were part of the New Age movement. Okay, and they start to gather around like a famous celebrity who's and they're chanting. They get they're getting all psyched up and and ready to go. And this is what they start chanting: "I am God, I am God, I am God." And this is what the author of the article concludes: "The irony of being human is that people in the same time and place." can have such contradictory views of themselves. One, so little value that she would kill herself 
another thinking they have so much value that they are gods themselves. And, uh, look, you may not be on the brink of suicide today. You may not be on the brink of divinization. I hope. If you are, if either of those apply, come talk to me after the service. (laughs) Nonetheless, you may have spent the week feeling ashamed, helpless, alone, worthless, like you don't want to even get out of bed in the morning, like you can't even look yourself in the mirror. Some of you may felt that way. You may feel that way right now. Others of you may be, on the other hand, captivated by your own self-importance. So you guys may be loving yourself, worshiping yourself, and asking others to do the same, treating yourself as high and mighty and better than everyone and wanting everyone to give to you and to serve you. How should we think about ourselves? What should we think it means to be human? Go back to Genesis 1. Go back to the beginning. You should think of yourselves as created in God's image. Created in God's image. And because you were created in his image, you have purpose. You have meaning. You were created to resemble him. You were created to represent him on earth. You were created to relate to him and to worship him. And we need to remember this purpose. And here, I'm indebted to the book I just mentioned, to Design for Dignity by Richard Pratt. I I encourage all of you to get it and read it. And what he does is he basically, in talking about the image of God, says there's two ways to think of just that one phrase. Image of God from verse 26. You should... Consider yourselves as having dignity because you are like God. You're in his image, God's image. That's the, that's the positive side. On the other hand, you should consider yourself in a humble way as having humility, dignity and humility. Humility, why? Because you are only the image. You aren't the creator. You aren't God. And, and thinking of yourself in that way, Keeping in mind these two um, God-centered perspectives on humanity counters both your godless despair and your arrogant pride. Both your godless despair and your arrogant pride. And so I want to look back at Genesis 26 to 31, and I want to work some of this out and some of the implications of this view with you this morning. So look at, look at verse 26. He makes a big deal, the author of Genesis chapter 1, about being created in the image. He says in 26, let us make man in our image. And then he basically repeats himself with the same concept, so it's important, after our likeness. And then there's a little poem about it in verse 27. God created man in his image, his own image. Then he says it again, so four times, in the image of God, he created them. And the idea here is that we are like mirrors designed to reflect God's glory. And you don't have to go much further than Genesis 1 to see what God is like. God is a creative God. He's a God that speaks. He's a God that names things and brings order out of chaos. He is a good God who calls his creation good. And that means he creates people who themselves have the capacity to create, to build, and to make things. They have the capacity to relate to him, to speak back to him and to one another. 
They can love, and they are very good in their bodies, in their minds, in their souls, and in their spirits, and they're designed to worship him. So all of you in this room were created to resemble God. Think about that. Think about that. Uh, Typically in the ancient Near East, idols, the little statues that people would make to worship, were thought to be images of a god. So basically, you would, you would have uh, an idol present in various places and a little statue, and it would, supposed to, it, would, it would be supposed to represent that God in that place on that earth. And so where that statue is, there that God exercises his rule. On top of that, human kings were often considered an image of some god. They were the ones who were called images of God, probably because they ruled over other people. And those kings themselves would build little statues of themselves, actually probably large statues, to remind people, I run this place. I'm in this territory. I'm the one who is allowed to have power and authority and to rule. But look at Genesis 1. So so basically what's happening when the author says, you were created in his image, he's saying, you are God's Statue, in some senses, created to resemble him, created to represent him, created to show forth his rule. It means you are like a king. You are created to be royal, to, to have royalty. We so often do not treat each other in this way. And more than that, it's not only the kings, it's not only the special people, it's not only the celebrities, it's not only those with money and power. Here in Genesis 1, that concept, it's, it's uh, democratized. Everyone, every human, all humans are created in this image. That means that, that the author of Genesis 1, he's not concerned with all the distinctions that we make. We love to make distinctions among people. Rich versus poor. Educated versus uneducated. Liberal versus conservative. I'll leave you to decide which is the good and which is the bad category. I thought I'd get a better response from that. (laughs) Rich and poor, educated, uneducated. Good, bad, moral, immoral. The people like us, the people who are not like us. The author of Genesis 1 is not concerned with those categories. He's concerned with showing that you as humans are all little kings created to serve the great king above you and worship him and honor him. You are to rule over his creation on his behalf. And that explains all the language about dominion. So you see that word a couple times if you look at verse 26. Right after he says, let us make man in our image, let them have dominion over fish and birds and the earth. And then again in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion over it. You are royal caretakers, stewards. You are all important. You are all necessary. You are all valuable despite how marred you may have come, become since the fall and because of the effects of the fall. That value, it's inherent. It's not contingent upon your, your actions or upon your behaviors. It is given to you by virtue of the fact that you were created in his image. So uh, if I can give you an illustration of this, I think the, the, the word that comes to mind when I think of image most is steward. 
You are a steward of his creation. That has some implications for how you think about yourself, how you think about other people, how you think about the creation around you. When I think of the word steward, I always, because I'm a geek, think of the Lord of the Rings. Um, so I don't know if you remember, most of you have probably seen the movies at least, and some of you have read the book, but Denethor, you remember, is the steward of Gondor. Someone nod and pretend you know what I'm talking about. Okay, good. All the geeks nodded. Okay, Denethor is the steward of Gondor. What that means is the king doesn't live in Gondor anymore, and everybody's waiting, eagerly anticipating Aragorn coming back and returning and fixing the broken sword and fighting off the evil forces of Mordor. But in the meantime, there's a steward who is supposed to rule Gondor on behalf of the king and prepare it for him and keep it for him. And the idea here is not to exercise dominion carelessly. It's not to exercise dominion cruelly. The idea is to protect the people, to protect the land, to provide for the people. But he doesn't do it on his own authority. He doesn't make up how he should do it. He does it by submitting to the king who's the rightful heir who will return. But of course, if you read the if you read the book or saw the movie, you know what happens, right? Denethor gets tired of waiting for the king. He gets tired of not having the power and authority, and he says, "I want to take that power. I want to take that authority to myself. I want to be the king." And as he does that, as he grasps for more and more power, he basically nearly destroys the kingdom, and he destroys himself too. He ends up himself committing suicide, lying down on the funeral pyre and burning himself to death. And like Denethor, we fail often to treat ourselves and others with dignity. And so think about this. If you feel trapped in darkness, if you feel overcome with shame, if you feel burdened with guilt, you are not looking at yourself with realism or with sober judgment. You have to start with creation even before you move to the fall. Okay? Otherwise, um, let, let's, as Augustine once wrote, um, fallen man is a ruined palace. And a guy named Richard Lovelace commented, it's still a palace. It's still a palace. It's ruined, but it's still a palace. And the summary of the Christian life is certainly strength and weakness, and that involves an awareness of sin. And I'll talk about sin again and again and again as much as you want. But your understanding of sin has to be informed by what you were intended to be from the start, from the get-go, from the beginning. And so don't allow Satan and sin to so abuse you and to so beat you down to think that you are nothing and valueless when there is freedom to be found in Christ, the one who restores us to what we were intended to be. Additionally, seeing others as image bearers is going to affect how you treat them. It's going to affect how you treat them. And this has really um, challenged me, and it should challenge you powerfully in Philadelphia. So as I've been serving with you here at Liberty, I find myself more and more in neighborhoods where people don't look like me, where they don't talk like me, where they don't act like me. And what that has exposed in me, the word that keeps coming back to me and to mind is paternalism. How often I think I am the hero who's here to save folks who are... are, um, living terrible lives, how much, how much I have to give somebody else. Um, when I first moved to Philly, a friend of mine was giving me a tour around the city, 
And he said, and his, I said, Hey, Hey, where's the bad part of Philadelphia? Like, where's the, where's the ghetto? Where is it? And his wife didn't even miss a beat. She said, it's all the bad part. And do you ever feel that way? Do you ever find yourself looking around and saying, man, this isn't Boston. This isn't New York City. I had some guys take me to the ghetto in Boston. They were like so proud of how bad it was. And I was like, dudes, this is a nice neighborhood in Philadelphia. (laughs) It's like, you have no idea. You have no idea. But here's what I was convicted of this week. Here's what I want to convict you of and challenge you of. If that thinking is getting into your head, go back to Genesis 1. God created the world and everything in it. He crowned humans as kings, all of them. And that means that God is in every neighborhood working in some way. He is already there. He was there before you got there. He's working in the people who are there, who he created, because he called them image bearers. And that means they are kings. They are kings who can teach you as much about what it means to be human as you can teach them. Do you believe that? Think about it. Let me give you another example besides just going to Philly. I went to the hospital last week to visit Mike, who many of you know, a member of our congregation, who was hit by a car, and he was in the hospital, and on the way over there, I was thinking, I get to help Mike. I get to serve Mike. He's alone, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to be able to talk to him, pray with him, love him, and this is a good thing. And there isn't anything wrong with that. There's nothing bad about that. But when I got there, you know what the first question I asked him was? I said, hey, Mike, how are you doing? And those of you who know him will probably laugh, but he said, I can't complain. (laughs) It's like, you're in bed? You got hit by a car? Sure you can complain. (laughs) He had every everything to complain about. But you know what happened? Suddenly I realized that was a divine appointment. God sent me to Mike because I needed Mike. Because that whole morning I had been filled with complaining. I was complaining about the weather. I was complaining about what clothes I was wearing. I was complaining that my hair didn't look right. I was complaining about everything, (laughs) everything. But I got to Mike. You see what I mean? I thought I had something to offer Mike from on high. And I got there, and God said, Mike's in the the image of God, and I'm going to use him to change you too. And you know where we were? We were right here, treating each other with dignity, treating each other with humility. It wasn't lording it over somebody. And that's the way we have to think about the people around us. That's the way you have to think about yourselves. That's the way you have to think about your neighborhoods. If somebody asks you on your doorstep one night, why do you live in brewery town? Why do you live in North Philadelphia? You have to start with something good to say. Because this place was created in God's image and then run to the fall, then get to the fall. Have you ever noticed that Christian radio stations are constantly playing the worst news? It's always like the most, um, they, they focus in on like the murders and the most sort of kind of the worst things that have happened. And I think we do that because we're thinking of sin, but you've got to start with what these places and what people were created to be before you launch into a critique before you launch into seeing where sin has ravaged the place, before you launch into um, attempting to help. You see, um, the phrase image carries with it a check against our pretension and against our pride. And so on the other side of having dignity, Genesis 1 teaches us to have humility. 
So the check here is, I'm not simply saying look on the bright side. I'm not simply saying be more optimistic. I'm not saying have better self-esteem. Trust me, I'm not saying that. But you were created by a creator in relation to him. You are... contingent, you are dependent, you are more than, it's not like you emerged out of the primordial ooze, you're more than um, just synapses firing, you're in relation to a God who loves you, and so what that means is that at your most remarkable, at your most clever, even at your most creative, you're still accountable to the living God. There is more to this world than technology. There's more to this world than progress. There is a creator who is glorious, therefore he demands worship. And he presents himself as a king, therefore he demands obedience. And we get a sense of that when someone dies. But Genesis 1 calls us to get a sense of that at all times. To promote our humility, which will counter our tendency to think of ourselves as gods, to think of ourselves as as demigods, to think of ourselves as godlike or to at least think that we're better than everybody else who's around us. In a uh, famous poem by Percy Shelley called Ozymandias, now I know most of you probably have not heard of that one. There's a, oh, maybe you have. Okay, I'm getting nods on that. Good. Ozymandias, yes. Uh, In the poem, the speaker walks through the desert and he comes upon the trunk of an ancient statue, one of these statues we were talking about earlier, which was kind of a huge king who lived there and created a statue himself. But all that's left are the legs, and you can see kind of like part of the face that's been uh, broken and shattered, and it's in the desert wasteland. And then there's a little pedestal, and the pedestal says, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. But of course, the works are nowhere to be found. The statue itself is limited. The statue itself is decayed. The statue itself is no longer impressive. And we all go around thinking that we're so grand and high and above others. But we lose sight of our humble nature as image bearers. And that is going to lead us to an erosion of dignity. Let me give you an example of this. If you want to see a lack of humility leading to an erosion of dignity, I encourage everyone, not the faint of heart, but everyone who is is uh, of good cheer, strong and mighty, to read Ariel Levy's book, Female Chauvinist Pigs, Women in the Rise of Ranch Culture. Female Chauvinist Pigs, um, Women in the Rise of Ranch Culture. I read it over the summer. And she's a columnist. She's not a Christian. She writes for the New Yorker or for the uh, New York Times Magazine. I can't remember which. And she wrestles with a disturbing trend among women. This is what it is. She says, even though we live in a post-feminist era where women were told to be more liberated, they were told to be more empowered, they were told to find themselves, to look within, suddenly she notices that more women and more women are defining empowerment as the right to do whatever they want sexually no matter how dirty, cheap, or debasing. And this book is amazing. It's really depressing. But what she does is she stacks, she she says, all my friends, we went to Brown, and we went to Harvard, and we went to Princeton, and to other places, and we, you know, our mothers were the ones who burned their bras and taught us to be empowered. But suddenly, what I've noticed is all of my friends are doing really weird things like going to strip bars 
and I can't understand why. I don't understand what's going on. And they're saying that's what it means to be empowered. And she piles on the evidence. She interviews women who appear on Girls Gone Wild. She interviews Hugh Hefner's daughter, Christy Hefner, who is the CEO of Playboy, which is really weird when you start to think about it. So there's a woman in charge of that organization. She goes to clubs in Los Angeles. She talks to porn stars. And what she concludes out of this, it's, it's very depressing, is that raunch culture, that's her name for it, what was once reserved for the red light district has become mainstream. But here's the reason I'm telling you about this. Even though her commentary is staggeringly insightful, in the end, she doesn't have the resources to provide us with an alternative. She doesn't have the resources to provide us with an alternative. Feminism, with all of its strengths, with all of the correctness of many of its critiques, does not have the resources to correct the problem because of this. If all you offer people is unbridled freedom, liberating empowerment, and self-fulfillment, there is nothing you can do when your disciples redefine what it means to be empowered. And at the end of the book, she's there just kind of scratching her head. I, can't, I don't get it. We told them to be empowered, but now they're doing things I don't want them to do. They're doing degrading things to themselves and their bodies, and I don't know why. And I'm there. And I'm at the end of the book, and I'm like, you need a postlude. You need an epilogue. You need Jesus to show you what it means to find dignity and humility together. We live in, a, after the fall, you don't have to read feminist social commentary to see the degradation that's around you. Look in your own heart. Look in your own heart, and you will find the desire to become a god and the desire to rule over others. You will find depression and angst and every stripe of sin and shame. But where do you go? I would encourage you to go back to Genesis 1, Go back to the story. Go back to the larger story that makes sense out of your story. And as you go back to Genesis 1, I want you to see this is not the way things were meant to be. We were designed for dignity, for a purpose, for something better. And I hope you take to heart what Steve said last week. As you do that, recognize that opening that scripture and opening the Bible and opening those pages is, is there to lead you to the person of Jesus Christ who makes our hearts burn within us. If you can't see the palace because the ruins, look to Jesus. The author of Hebrews calls him the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. What were humans to look like? See Jesus, high and exalted and lifted up, come down as a man to die on your behalf, to take on himself your sin and shame and give to you the renewed, restored image of the living God. Paul in Colossians says he's the image of the invisible God, and therefore he created and has power over every throne and dominion and power and ruler and authority. And all things were created for him. In Psalm 8, he was created a little lower than the angels, a little lower than the heavenly beings. That is man. What does it mean to be human? Look to Jesus, the one happy man that the world has ever known, the truly humble man, the truly dignified man, and he will show you what it means to be truly human. Let's pray. Jesus, we, 
we thank you for the beginning, and we remember that this is not the end. We still have a long way to go. Fall, redemption, Abraham, all that's happening. But from the beginning, we say we want to know how to think about ourselves and the place that we fit into this world that you have created, and we want to find ways to give you more glory and honor and treat ourselves and each other with more dignity and with more humility. Save us from ourselves, we pray uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.